finish our series on marriage uh, from 1 Peter chapter 3. If you don't have a uh, Bible, uh, there's one underneath the seat in front of you, and you can find our passage today on page 1015. Uh, while you look that up, I'm just going to make a couple of announcements. First, if you are our guest here this morning, we're happy that you're with us this morning. Uh, we'd love to know a little bit more about you. We've got a card that's just to the left of the main exit. Um, that If you could grab one of those and fill it out and drop it off in the box below, um, we'd love to, to know a little bit more about you that way. And of course, um, for our members, you can fill that out with prayer requests. You can also just email us at pastors at orchardbible.org. That's a great way to get a hold of us as well. We really uh, cherish the opportunity to pray for you as we do uh, every Wednesday night when we meet. Uh, the second announcement I have for you this morning, we have a new people's class. Uh, so if you are new uh, to Orchard and you want to learn a little bit more about our distinctives, kind of why we do things the way we do, uh, want to learn a little bit more about how you can get plugged in here, uh, you can join our new people's class next Sunday during this service, during the preaching service downstairs in the community room. And with that, um, I would ask if you are able, please stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. And again, I'm going to read uh, from the two verses that uh, Nate has selected this morning. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 4 and verse 7. This is the word of the Lord. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for marriage. What a special relationship. What a unique gift you have given us in marriage. And thank you for giving us your word to teach us what it looks like, how to live it, how to face all the challenges that each of us who are married are bound to go through. I just pray this morning as we spend some more time looking at it that you will uh, encourage us, give us hope, give us direction, Give us your, your word for each of us in our marriage this morning, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, as you've heard, we are uh, here in week three at the end of a deep dive on marriage since our passage in First Peter 3 uh, took us to this section. But before I get into anything serious, and there will be plenty this morning, I just had to share a few more great quotes on marriage that I've collected over the years. The first is by comedian Will Ferrell, not something you'd expect to hear certainly uh, in a sermon, but he has some insight. Before marrying someone, you should first make them use a computer with slow internet just to see who they really are. Marriage is like a walk in the park, Jurassic Park. Can feel that way. When a man opens a car door for his wife, it's either a new car or a new wife. I just have to comment here, men. I hope that's not true for us. And ladies, let your husbands open the door for you, please. 
On the serious side, here are a few more quotes. They're so good. A sure sign of a man's strength is how gently he loves his wife. More marriages might survive if the partners realize that sometimes the better comes after the worse. Isn't that good? My worldview, my philosophy, my attitudes, my relationships, my parenting, my marriage, everything has been transformed by my relationship with Christ. Lee Strobel. Last week, we looked at the groundbreaking passage on marriage in Ephesians 5, where the apostle Paul reveals the profound or the mega mystery of the purpose of marriage. Marriage is a human copy of the relationship between Christ and the church. So I encourage you to stare daily at that original. If we're to copy it, we must know and cherish Christ's actions, words, and leadership of the church and the church's attitudes, actions, and words in return. I also encourage you to throw out the forgeries that are blocking your view of the original. Lies about what marriage is and how to be most fulfilled in it. God's pattern of the gospel and his word need to be at the root of your marriage. It's what the tree of your marriage grows out of. And this introduces the analogy that I want to use as the framework for today's points. The tree analogy. You see, before you're married, you can think of yourselves as two trees. You're each planted in the ground. Maybe the two of you are planted in very similar ground, maybe very different. Perhaps one of you were planted and have grown up in rich soil with regular watering. You were surrounded by people who fed your soul with biblical truth and godly love. They helped, protected, nurtured, and pruned you as you grew. And you're healthier and you bear more fruit because of this. I'm so thankful to God if that's your story. But you may have grown up in rocky, dry soil. You were surrounded by bad examples. And even if they tried to love you, to care for you, it was not done well. So your soul was hungry and malnourished. And you've been injured as you grew into the tree you are today. This has resulted in some of your branches growing up twisted and dry without life. I am so sorry if that's your story. But I'm so glad that you're here today to hear that you can be grafted into the root of God through the work of Jesus Christ for you. Jesus says in John 15, 5, I am the vine or the root and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit for apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, I don't know if you know what that means. Maybe you're not sure if Jesus is your root. And if that's the case, then talk with me. Let's figure this out. Whether you're married or single, don't work or think about anything else until you're rooted in Christ. So you're two trees before marriage, but when you're married, you become one tree. You're both grafted into the same root But you're also grafted into each other. You're not separate anymore. You're growing as one. 
Well, what happens if the husband looks over and sees some of the branches on his wife that are looking not good? Maybe they're, they look malnourished or they're dying. And the wife looks back and sees her husband and he looks a little hacked and mangled and there's not much fruit. Is this new conjoined disfigured tree worth saving or even fighting for? The answer is yes. You're one and you can't easily throw the other half of the tree out. You've been grafted together. You're sharing one life. So you need to find a way to cultivate your marriage. But how? First, study your marriage. Study your spouse. We'll spend most of our time on that this morning. But you should also feed your marriage, prune your marriage, and finally delight in your marriage. All right, study your marriage. Where should your studies begin? Uh, There are lots of areas to study. Some are fun. Uh, Thinking about things like what does your husband or wife enjoy? What do they like? What are they interested in? What's special for them? What chore do they hate that maybe, maybe you could do for them? Put on your thinking cap and continue to ask questions and try things to know your spouse and what's good for your marriage. We're all different, but here's one example. Uh, as a newlywed man, I had this picture in my mind, a very romantic picture of waking up in the morning and making coffee, special breakfast, eggs, bacon, toast, you know, the whole thing, put it on a tray, take it in in the morning, breakfast in bed. Uh, Sounds great. Uh, But I didn't know Michelle yet. I hadn't had time to study her. You see, being woken up under any circumstances is, well, it's not appreciated. On top of that, she always needs to go to the bathroom. So being locked under a tray full of food is not exactly special either. And lastly, she never, even in times of duress, eats or drinks anything before she's brushed her teeth. Okay, not a big deal. No breakfast in bed. Go back to the drawing board. As it turns out, a romantic morning is when I feed the dogs, write a note on the mirror, and leave the latte on the dresser and quietly exit the room. (laughs) Victory, I can do that. Maybe not every day, but I'm sure you could share lots of examples too, especially those of you who've been married for quite a while, of things that you've studied and learned about your spouse What makes your marriage work? But where do the studies get hard? Where are we prone to not study and not learn? Well, our two key verses that we just read show attitudes of a husband and wife. So let me ask you a question. Ladies, you first. When is it most difficult to adorn yourself with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Men, when is it most difficult to be understanding, showing honor to your wife? There are a few answers, but the one that stands out clearly as a more difficult time to have these attitudes and actions is 
during conflict. Ladies, it's easy to fix your hair and put on jewelry, even if you're in conflict with your husband. But isn't it harder to put on respectful and pure conduct, from verse 2, and a gentle and quiet spirit, verse 4? Men, it's much easier to honor your wife when you're doing something you enjoy, but it becomes much more challenging to be understanding and kind when you're arguing and there's conflict, isn't it? I believe that conflict in any relationship, but especially true in marriage, can help us learn more about each other and ourselves than all the days of bliss. We all want less conflict versus more conflict. But remember, if you just stuff it all inside, it can be worse still. So we want healthy conflict versus unhealthy conflict. We want productive conflict versus counterproductive conflict. Our marriage should be, get this, better after conflict, not worse after conflict. So I'd like to share about three categories of conflict, areas that Michelle and I have learned and encountered as we've studied each other and studied our conflict. And I, uh, I hope they're helpful for you. Let me be clear. We have not mastered these, but our studies have helped. Learning through conflict, 101, expectations and desires. In our first years of marriage, we found ourselves arguing or maybe just hurt by all kinds of things. But as we took the time to talk through why the other person was upset, it often boiled down to missed expectations. Some were trivial. How long we were going to stay at a party or what time I'd be home from work. Others were more personal. How are we going to spend our time and money on that precious and much needed vacation, or even more vulnerable topics like sexual expectations. By investing time in studying our conflict, we learned two keys to avoiding these types of conflict altogether. That sounds nice. Here they are. First, understand the difference between expectations and desires and try to change or convert your expectations to desires. So what's the difference between expectations and desires? Well, here's how we can understand it. An expectation means that the bar is here. Here's what's expected. This is the minimum. And if you can't get up to that expectation, then you've failed your spouse. You've let them down. If, if the desire is replacing that expectation, though, then the expectation, the minimum is way down here. And anything above and beyond that certainly is what you would love and appreciate. But now you're delighted with it instead of upset that the minimum has not been met. The bar has been missed. You haven't failed or let me down or missed the mark if it doesn't work out according to my desire. Notice this. If you're both setting lots of expectations on each other then you will be constantly failing each other. Working hard to just barely meet the minimum. This creates a world where you are worried and defensive because the next failure is just around the corner. Maybe it's better to not even try. Then maybe I can force the expectation down a little. 
No, that's not the answer. You need to realize the expectations that you have. Reframe them. Restate them as desires. When you do, your spouse has the opportunity to delight you, to go above and beyond when they give up their way for yours instead of just barely meeting your demands. But just because it's a desire doesn't mean you shouldn't share it. You need to be assertive and clear and specific, but also willing to let it go. Too often we hope or assume our spouse knows what we want, and this leads to unnecessary hurt and fighting. So tell each other your desires, but try to minimize expectations. That's the first key. Here's the second. There are some expectations that you need to keep as expectations. These things are the the, the ones that are very important to you. But you want to limit them, but it's okay to have them. But how do we resolve conflict here then when there are expectations that, that need to be kept? And here's the key. Set and reset and recommunicate your expectations. Over communicate. Be specific. Be clear. I really need you home by 4 p.m. today because I need to be across town by 5 o'clock. I'm willing to relax and have some fun this weekend, but we have to get the house clean before Monday or I'm going to be stressed all week. Or maybe it's the other way around and you're from fun country like me and it goes like this. I'm willing to work hard and knock out some chores today, but can we get a list of things that really need to be done because I really want to spend the rest of the weekend relaxing and having fun. Here's the powerful secret to expectations. We all have them, but when we discuss them ahead of time, and align expectations, we can do so before we're upset and we avoid the blow-ups. You will make it easier for your spouse to love you if you give them time to align and agree than if you tell them afterward, oh, by the way, you missed a very important expectation of mine. That's where defensiveness sprouts up in a hurry. So study your conflict. Look for desires and expectations. Talk about these and demote as many expectations to desires as possible. I don't care how long you've been married. You can always revisit 101 and eliminate a huge amount of unnecessary conflict in your marriage. All right, that wasn't too bad, was it? All right, you're ready for learning through conflict 201, sins and forgiveness. It's about to get real. In the conflict 101, it's really not anyone's fault. It's not about character as much as alignment, getting on the same page, which does require some amount of setting aside of self. But a much more difficult type of conflict is when my sin or Michelle's causes us to hurt each other. I think you get the picture, but let me expand on it. In his excellent book, The Meaning of Marriage, Tim Keller gives an analogy of your life as a bridge. This bridge has hairline fractures. And when you get married, a 10-ton Mack truck begins to drive across your bridge. And here's what he says. The truck 
didn't create the weaknesses. It revealed them. Keller says, marriage does not so much bring you into confrontation with your spouse as confront you with yourself. Marriage shows you a realistic, unflattering picture of who you are, then takes you by the scruff of the neck and forces you to pay attention to it. This may sound discouraging, but it is really the road to liberation. Finally, you can begin dealing with the real you. Don't resist this power that marriage has. Give your spouse the right to talk to you about what is wrong with you. End of quote. Full disclosure, this hurts. None of us like to be told about our weaknesses or our sins. I love this quote by John Piper. We discover the sediment in the clear, sweet beaker of our life when she shakes it. Marriage is wonderful if you can live with constant conviction of sin. I love that quote. Well, I have one, just one personal example of this. One of my many flaws that came up early on in marriage is uh, my rashness to jump into new things without advancing with caution. In frustration, I told Michelle, you know, why is it that everyone else is so supportive of my ideas and you're always pushing back? She said something I'll never forget. Because they don't have to live with the real life that comes from those decisions like I do. Isn't that true? Well, as I look out and I see smiles on a number of faces, I can see that you're hoping your spouse is really listening to some of this. Uh, Which I hope so too. But the unfortunate thing is that they're also smiling. So that means they must be thinking the same thing. So I'd like to do an exercise that should be painful for each of us here. And I have but one request, and that is that you think only about yourself for the next 60 seconds as I read this. And in case you're doubtful, let me reassure you, yes, you are in this list, which is also taken from Tim Keller's book. What are the flaws that your spouse will see? You may be a fearful person with a tendency toward great anxiety. You may be a proud person with a tendency to be opinionated and selfish. You may be an inflexible person with a tendency to be demanding and sulky if you don't get your way. You may be an abrasive or harsh person who people tend to respect more than they love. You may be an undisciplined person with a tendency to be unreliable and disorganized. You may be an oblivious person who tends to be distracted, insensitive, and unaware of how you come across to others. You may be a perfectionist with a tendency to be judgmental and critical of others and also to get down on yourself. You may be an impatient, irritable person with a tendency to hold grudges or to lose your temper too often. You may be a highly independent person who does not like to be responsible for the needs of others, who dislikes having to make joint decisions, and who most definitely hates to ask for any help yourself. You may be a person who wants far too much to be liked, so you tend to shade the truth. You can't keep secrets. You work too hard to please everyone. You may be thrifty, 
but at the same time miserly with money, too unwilling to spend it on your own needs appropriately and ungenerous to others. Others have seen these flaws in you. Your parents certainly have, and others that have lived with you, such as siblings or college roommates or friends, they've seen them too. But if they spoke to you about them, you could either write them off as being biased or mistaken, or you could escape from the weight of the criticism by vaguely promising to do better in the future. However, your confronters didn't keep up their confrontations, and you haven't really admitted the severity of the problem. The reason was that the flaw did not pose the same kind of problem for them as it will for your spouse. End quote. Study, pay attention during your times of conflict or after. What sin of yours was revealed? Put down your defenses. How could you have treated your spouse more like the picture in Ephesians 5, the original that you're called to copy. And when you see that sin, most important and the most difficult thing to do is to ask for forgiveness. It's not enough to see it. You must do this. When was the last time you told your spouse, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? And don't do it halfway with excuses and generalities by saying, well, I see now that I suppose I could have done that better. Find the name of the sin. Include it. Apologize. Make it right. Your spouse sees what you did. You're not hiding or concealing anything by not admitting it. Honey, I am sorry for responding in pride. I'm sorry that I put my needs above your needs. Will you forgive me? When you do this, it might feel like you're lowering in their sight, that they, you're, you're reducing yourself, but you are soaring in their eyes. You're unlocking God's power for your life and your marriage when you admit that you're wrong and you ask for forgiveness. And if you find yourself on the other end of this and your spouse is admitting wrong, they're asking for forgiveness, that's nice, but sometimes it's actually a difficult task as well. What if they do this sin all the time? What if you have no hope that they'll change? What if you have forgiven them over and over? Well, the Bible calls you to forgive again and to not hold on to bitterness because bitterness is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. On the other hand, forgiving does not mean that trust has been restored or that the relationship has been fully reconciled. That may take much longer. But you must Offer real forgiveness when a real apology has been offered. There's so much more on this topic, but this is just a 201 class. So just remember this. Marital conflict reveals sins and weakness, the cracks that were already there. You can ignore and minimize the truth, or you can study it, painful as that is. 
Invite your spouse to teach you what they're learning about you. Make it easy for them to talk to you about these things and reap the rich rewards that are locked up until you do. And husband, wife, if your spouse is willing to be this vulnerable and invite you to share this type of truth, please be careful, very careful, and very gentle. Do it with much love. Lastly, make it right. Ask for forgiveness, name the sin, and give grace and forgiveness freely and fully. I want to encourage you that you're not alone in this. Yours is not the only marriage struggling with it. It may take different shapes in each of us, but we all are in great need of sanctification. I mentioned this last week, but over the last three years, Michelle and I have run into some new struggles Or more likely, they've been there all along and we're finally seeing them more clearly. I'm not sure exactly why these things are coming up now. Um, But we've invested many hours in studying our marriage and each other. Each time we feel worse, we feel weaker. After conflict, we talk about it. Sometimes for hours because it's difficult to find answers. And what we've learned is that regardless of the circumstances, which are varied, there is a single pattern to them all. And yet one we can't seem to prevent. So tell me if this feels familiar. You've had conflict. You look at it and you can't identify clearly something obvious that either party has done wrong. You both feel self-justified about the way you acted Maybe you even tried carefully, but one or both of you are still hurt afterwards. The intimacy has been damaged. A wall has gone up somehow. What can we learn when we see this pattern? Learning through conflict 301, hungry, hurting hearts. Just like a body or a tree Sometimes the causes of the symptoms are not obvious, but something must not be healthy or right or strong down deeper in our hearts. Our conflict is revealing that we have hungry, hurting hearts for some reason. Something's not being fed and nurtured well. This leaves the heart deficient, hungry, even starved. And it makes it more susceptible to injury. Even a soft touch can cause pain. Now, this could be because you're not feeding the marriage and your spouse what it needs spiritually, emotionally, physically. It's a starvation of the heart. Or it could be that it's being fed lots, lots of unhealthy things, a poisoning of the heart. Or it could be that it's feeding on the spouse or the marriage itself for life. It's like a parasitic heart. It could also be that good nutrients are going in, but that you're so focused on identifying problems of areas of growth that you've pruned your tree of your marriage right down to the stump, nitpicking and criticizing every fault. 
whatever the combination of these it is, it makes you feel raw, doesn't it? Overworked, starved, little joy in your marriage. And so your husband or your wife points out something very legitimate that you could have done better. Something tiny, like how you worded a text message or interacted with a neighbor, one of your kids. Could be about work around the house or it could be some habit they've noticed. And it will feel very sensitive to you. Even painful when touched, which will lead to conflict. Even if that means you just shut down. It doesn't always mean a blow up. Further study is required. Get help from a mature friend, a church leader, a professional counselor to help uncover what is causing your soul to be hungry and hurting when it should be well-fed and resilient. And while it's impossible for me to know where you're each at this morning, and help you deal with your hungry, hurting hearts for many different reasons. Uh, there are three overarching basics that will help you deal with your heart. It will cultivate life and fruit in your marriage. And we'll go through these pretty quickly. First, feed your marriage. What kind of food does a marriage need? What nutrients are needed to make it flourish and bear fruit? What kind of soil keeps it from being starved and poisoned or becoming self-parasitic? I'm going to give you two basic food groups this morning. Here's the first. Feed your marriage God's word. Is your heart hungry? Is your spouse not satisfying you? Have you tried adding more of God's word to see if that will help? I know it sounds crazy simplistic, but Psalm one, one through three says, listen to the analogy here. Blessed is the man or the woman who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his or her delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. What kind of tree is that? A tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Matthew 13, we learn that God's word must feed our hearts about our identity in Christ as his bride in order to bear fruit, the picture of the soils. Well, in the same way, your own marriage needs to accept more of God's word, more of the gospel, if it is to bear fruit. Some hearts hear this word and do not understand it. The evil one comes and snatches away what's been sown in their hearts about marriage. Some hearts like the idea of a marriage that looks like Christ in the church, something that looks like the gospel. They receive it with joy. But when trials or suffering arise on account of following the word, immediately fall away. Some hear what the word calls them to in marriage, but the cares of the world, this deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. And now here's the fourth heart. Watch what happens with God's word and the gospel. 
as for what is sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, in another thirty. So is your marriage struggling and you can't figure out why? Feed it God's word. Each of you individually and together. You are one, and as you consume God's word and understand it, God will change you. Just like Lee Strobel's quote about how everything changed. Your roots will grow deep. You will grow stronger. You will rely less on circumstances and even on each other to be happy. Your identity and future are in Christ. They will grow and your time uh, in the word will cause you to believe the promises more. Your expectations of this world and each other will turn to desires It will be easier to see your sins and to ask for forgiveness. And your heart will be well-fed and more resilient. How amazing that when we get stuck in our marriage, we don't have to Google how to live with a difficult husband or wife and hope that the results we get back will improve it instead of make it worse. All scripture has been breathed out by God, so it's perfect like he is. No wonder it's profitable for teaching us, reproving us, correcting us, and training us in righteousness. Our marriage can be equipped for every good work. That's God's promise. So are you reading it? Are you studying it? Why would you struggle in your marriage and leave this resource untapped, ignoring God's word? So first, feed your marriage God's word. Second, feed your marriage prayer. Have you tried prayer when your soul is hungry? Have you tried fasting when your marriage is hurting? Two things happen when you pray as a couple. First, prayer reveals the condition of your heart to your spouse. It's impossible to consistently hide how you feel about circumstances, about God, about sin, about the spiritually lost, about brothers and sisters in Christ when you pray. If there's a widening gap in your relationship with Christ, then praying and worshiping with your spouse will help you identify it and work through it together. So it reveals your heart. But secondly, prayer changes the condition of your heart. The phrase, oh, my soul, appears 29 times in the book of Psalms, which are both prayers and worship. Soul work is being done when we pray. But it's not easy to pray, especially when we're struggling. It takes intentionality and practice and discipline, and you have to be willing to fail. You have to try. It's not a magic pill, but it does work. Let me share a story uh, by John Piper that he shared about his own marriage as it relates to prayer. I'll try to get through this without choking up. Place your bets. (laughs) This is what Piper shares. There have been times when we can scarcely talk to each other. Haven't had sex for three to four weeks. It is bad. And I kneel. My wife is submissive. She kneels. We can't talk. Now you can view that as pure hypocrisy. How can you come before the throne? First go and get your matter settled. Then come offer your gift. 
We've tried. 33 months in counseling. How long do you have to try before you begin praying again? No. We won't go there. We will get down on our knees. And John Piper, the leader, will say one word. Help. Amen. And we'll get into bed and we'll put our backs to each other. That's leadership. Crummy, lousy, no good, inadequate leadership. But real, necessary at that moment, leadership. So feed your marriage prayer. And feed it God's word. And you will find healing, strengthening, and much fruit. Next, prune your marriage. We've kind of talked about this already. So just a few words to make you better pruners. Yes, as a spouse, you're called to prune the branches of your husband or wife uh, that are not bearing fruit. But I don't need to encourage you in uh, this task. I can see you're already eager, eager to help. So that's why I have this point in your outline. Notice that you should study your marriage before you start pruning. Don't dive in with clippers blazing. Let's not be over eager. Remember, you're one tree now. It's pretty easy for me to look at Michelle as a tree and myself as separate and to go in pruning and be too aggressive and frequent in my pruning. And she's likely to do the same. But when I remember that we're one tree, then I'm more careful, I'm more patient. So be patient. If your idea of cultivating fruit in your marriage is pruning every day, you're going to kill the tree. Remember that after pruning, it takes a long time for new growth to come out, for there to be fruit. Give each other time. You'll never see the fruit because you're headed back in with fresh critiques and suggestions before you let the last round grow and mature. I heard a helpful illustration just last week from a couple after church. They had an arborist come to teach them about pruning real trees. And the arborist said the rule is that the branches of a tree are meant, their job is to let light into the heart. So remember this. When you see branches going up to the sun, those are good. But those that are growing down away from the light are the ones that need to be pruned. Such a cool analogy. When you prune, check your attitude and your goal. Your one tree and your one goal is to let more of God's light into the heart of your marriage. Lastly, delight in your marriage. Marriage is a lot of work, isn't it? We've spent a lot of time talking about studying and feeding and pruning. And many of you are thinking, this is why we don't have a garden at home. <laughs> Too much work. Too much work. And it's true. Cultivating your marriage is, does take a lot of effort. And unfortunately, we can go in with our spouse ready and work and work and work and work. And then at some point, we stand back and we look and we wish it looked better. We see the flaws. We see all the room for improvement. We know we dare not prune any further. We've forgotten to delight in our marriage. 
to enjoy the coolness of the shade from its branches. The sweet taste of fruit that we've worked so hard to cultivate. How tragic if the owner of the orchard never harvested the fruit, never enjoyed all the good things that he worked so hard to nurture. It's possible for the farmer with sweat on his brow, worried about his crops, to not appreciate the sunset as the sun casts its light across all those rows of golden wheat. We need to cease and rest from our labors too. Enjoy your wife. She's a gift from God. Love being her husband. Rest in your husband's embrace. He's a gift to you from God. Love being his wife. Delight in each other. Think of all you have and you are that you would not have had without your spouse. Don't always focus on the bad. Dream about your future. Look back on the good things in your past and enjoy each other in the present. At the root, you're a picture of Christ in the church, remember? What if God sacrificed for us but didn't love us? On the contrary, if you accept Jesus' sacrifice for you on the cross, and I urge you if you have not accepted it today, You get the full, rich, eternal love of God. And no day you ever live will be as glorious as the day that your voice joins the great multitude like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. No day will be like that. But every day of your marriage is an opportunity to rejoice and exult and celebrate the copy that God has given to you for your days under the sun. So please, with all that working, don't forget to delight in your marriage. Please stand. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, we thank you for this picture, some things to hold on to as we often can go through our life and become disappointed or disillusioned and and not understand why. Encourage us to take the time to study your word, to pray, to take that knowledge and talk to our spouse. Spend the time, study what desires and expectations and sin and hungry, hurting is going on. And I pray that you would be faithful as you have promised to give us life, to give us delight, to give us joy. Thank you for reminding us that it's not all work, that this is a beautiful gift that you have given to us. I pray for each marriage here 
is they take these thoughts home, these little seeds, that they would bear much fruit. There's nothing that I can do or say, Lord, that will save or really even help a marriage. It's, it's you. It's the Holy Spirit. It's the truth and the desire to follow after you from the heart. I pray that you would do that work in many of our hearts this morning. Change us, we pray, for your glory and our joy and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.